we're going to be continuing our series called Facing the Giants this morning. I'm picking up where Mark left off from Matthew chapter 5, and I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, if you have your Bibles with you or on your phones. We'd like to look at the next giant that we're facing, and I just want to point out that as we tackle these, they are getting bigger and bigger and um, more and more lofty in a sense. Jesus is honing in on the bullseye. And so I want to remind you what he's doing. Coming for round two. <laughs> the test is coming for round two. Awesome. Um, so I want to remind you what Jesus is doing. He's saying to anybody who wants to follow me, anybody here who wants to follow Jesus, he's saying our life is going to look so different to what the world looks like. And every single one of these giants, man, if you really get the heart of what Jesus is saying and he's, the challenge that he's calling us to, it is so different to the way the world thinks and to the world, way the world operates, even different to those that were thought to be the holiest and most religious people in those days. They were called the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, you admire these guys, these teachers of the law. They're so clever. You admire all their religious practices. But actually, when you look at their lives, Jesus is saying, they're not your mark or standard. I want you, if you're going to follow me, to go much higher than them. He says, unless our righteousness, in other words, our longing and our living in such a way to be right with Jesus, if that is going to be our desire, our righteousness must go higher. It must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And unless that happens, oh, the very thing God wants to give you and me called the kingdom, the very experience of the personal presence of Jesus in your life, the very experience of his authority and power, his kingship moving you forward, the very power of the Spirit at work in your life and moving through your life, he can't give us. You with me so far? Now, why do I unpack that? Because it is so important. As we look at these six giants that Jesus uses in our society that we face, that our faith is going to come up against, he is helping us go higher and higher and higher. We started off with anger and reconciliation. Anger, it is just at the fundamental basis of our being. You don't have to go very far to see how angry you and I can get, right? Then there's something called lust. It gets a bit more subtle. He talks about something that happens in our heart that when we start to look around, it's something that we have to be so careful of. Oh, then he got to, oh, that sermon on divorce. Then he goes today, I mean, yes, last week, keeping your word. And I want to show you today that Jesus has almost reached the summit of what he is doing and leading us into. We're almost there. It's the second last giant. And today I want to preach on something called revenge. And can I say to you today, I am feeling so weak <laughs> because as I have sought to understand what these verses mean, I tell you, I was up late last night. These words of Jesus, they just, they are for me, left me in the dust. And so I'm coming to you this morning as best as what I feel God has shown me. I'm going to share with you. I don't think I even fully understand them yet. But I'm hoping, I'm, I've decided to break it up in two parts. I'm going to do an introduction today as to setting the foundation for next week. We will look at all of these scenarios that Jesus talks about in detail. But today, I want to prepare our hearts 
for what Jesus wants to lead us into. Can I say that what we are about to read, John Stott has rightly said, it is the most admired words of Jesus, but also the most resented. And I'm going to read it to you this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And listen carefully, listen carefully to what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, your undergarment, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. However you want to take it, those words that Jesus has just been quoted on as saying, guys, they are radical. They are radical. I'm not asking you to just read those words and say, well, that's us. Listen to what Jesus is saying. If we really want to apply what he is saying, I tell you, it is probably one of the most difficult texts to preach on because it raises a lot of questions. Are we to take this text literally, in other words, word for word, are we never to resist an evil person? In other words, if someone breaks into your house, are you just to turn the other cheek and say, oh, well, God's in it, God wills it? If someone's trying to rape you, are you just supposed to turn your other cheek and say, oh, well, God's in it? Are we never to resist evil? Is that what Jesus is saying? Or is it, are we to give to anybody who asks us? Put that into our context here in South Africa. Down the road at Beach Road, there are five to ten guys that if you park outside there, they are going to ask you. And if the word gets out about Christians who are supposed to give whenever they are asked, let me tell you, you'll not make it down Oxford Street without any cash left in your wallets. Not so? How many of you have heard these words and have felt so guilty? Because Jesus is saying this, but in real life, how does this play out? And one of the struggles for me is this, is I can say to you which is true is that Jesus is not asking to be taken literally throughout the sermon. I hope not. Otherwise, some of you would have walked in here with no right hands. <laughs> because in last, he says, if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Please don't do that. He also said, like Mark said last week, God, Jesus says, don't even take an oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But he has just spoken on divorce and said, Guys, hold your marriage vows extremely high. Jesus himself took an oath in Matthew 26 when he was forced to by the high priest. He takes an oath. We can see a precedent here that Jesus is not calling us to take his words and apply them mechanically into our lives. He's asking us to follow the spirit of them. Are you with me when I say that? But the danger is, and this is what keeps me awake at night last night, is I can tell you this is not what these words mean, and I can dilute their radical nature to such a sense, such a degree, where you and I feel no challenge. 
we can do that. We can excuse our not giving. We can excuse why we're in this certain, certain context. We can have our legal rights if someone sues us. We can live our lives in such a way that we, we can excuse the status quo. You got me? But Jesus won't let us do that. Is these words, they are radical. And I am reluctant to paint his words in anything other than what they are trying to do. Is they're trying to move us, which is I want to lay the platform today. Jesus wants to pull us out of ourselves, our comfort zones, our preoccupation with what's mine, with my reputation of what people think about me. With my time, when somebody puts pressure or inconveniences my time, I've got to go one, oh, I've got to go two. Or even this, the very sense of our own legal rights when we are wronged. Jesus is saying, in these things, he wants to show us something about ourselves. And I'm praying that grace will come in order for me to help us see it. And can I just be honest? The life of preaching. It is very, 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 very high in terms of the accountability. And so even this morning, whatever interpretation I'm bringing, I need you to know that I'm feeling the weight of how we are to apply that in our lives. And there was a couple of, there's a couple of different interpretations of this. One was taking these words totally literally. Is that right? Literally. Totally. Tot- who of you have heard of that author, Leo Tolstoy? He wrote War and Peace. It's enormous. I've never read it because it's too big, right? He also wrote Anna Karenina. I can't say that surname. Can you help me in that? Karenina. Is that right? <laughs> anyway. And what he did was, he was a social reformer, and he said, well, if we take Jesus' words literally, then there must be no police force. Because you must not resist evil. There must be no army. There must be no judges or courts because Jesus said, don't resist evil. So what he said was, well, you've got to abolish anything in society that sets itself up against evil. But strange thinking. And someone who picked up on that teaching was Mahatma Gandhi. He was influenced by Tolstoy's interpretation of these words of Jesus. And the pacifism, you know, Mahatma Gandhi refused to have any violence. You heard about Mahatma Gandhi, yeah? He built his entire philosophy of not resisting the state by violence, but in a sense by peaceful protest. His entire philosophy came from these words of Jesus. And Mahatma Gandhi said when he read these words of Jesus, it made him admire Jesus. But even Mahatma Gandhi did not get to exercise his full political philosophy. He died before he could define what he meant by the state. And he was sympathetic to Tolstoy. He said, there must be no police force. The state is not a ruling, governing, dominant authority. And tragically, what happened? Mahatma Gandhi died, I think, before he could see the outworking of his teaching. But for Tolstoy, he, he died a tragic life. Because these very things that he, he taught, he started getting into trouble. He realized it didn't work in real life. In other words, if there's an interpretation that lends to being ridiculous, it can't be right. The second thing is, if this interpretation that whatever we decide to try and angle this text at, it mustn't contradict other scriptures. And so when Jesus says, don't resist the evil person, we have to remember what what James and Peter said. He says, we have to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. In other words, we don't need to be having tea parties with Satan. 
We don't go, oh, well, evil's coming into my life. I do nothing about it. No, no, no. Jesus and Paul and, and James and Peter said very clearly, we have to resist the evil one and he will flee from you. The third is this is, these words of Jesus, they have to apply to our everyday life. Not so. The interpretation of this text can't just be so difficult that it's impossible to apply. That's not Jesus' heart. No, no. Every single ordinary daily chore that we do and thing that we do, these words of Jesus need to be applicable. So in saying all that, what is Jesus really getting at in this text? Well, the first is this, is that he's dealing with a spirit, an attitude of retaliation in us. Oh man, to be human is to have this aspect of our lives where we feel that we get to strike back when we are wronged. There's this feeling of self-defense. There's this feeling of vindictiveness that arises in us. And to have that is to be human. My friend, you and I are born with that predisposition to have a retaliatory spirit. I look forward to the day to seeing how my son responds to my little girl. She's got one up on him at the moment. She's two and a half and he's eight months. But watch it. When he starts to be able to strike back, he will not tolerate all of the pouring of water, the teasing, the kind of stuff that she does to him. It's not going to be long before his parents, and if you know, if you have kids, you're going to have to manage that sibling rivalry, right? Mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy. It's just happened. One strikes, other strikes back. It always happens that way. And friends, that is what we are born with. There's a spirit inside of us that retaliates. And so let's unpack this where, where, where Jesus starts. Let's start where, where he talks about the law. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and I'm sure you've heard it before. It says, you, plural, you, bunch of disciples, have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How many of you have heard that before? Huh? Yeah. Now, Jesus is quoting from the law here. And it's a part of the law where it helps Israel govern itself as a nation. And this eye for an eye and tooth for tooth comes three times in Scripture. The first is Exodus chapter 21 verse 24. I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but the first context is, let's say one man's fighting against another, and his pregnant wife comes to step in to try and stop the fighting, and this enemy strikes the wife in the stomach, and she loses her baby. Which would happen in those days. Let me tell you guys, we're so violent towards pregnant women. I won't get into all that. How does the Lord deal with it? If it talks about Life for life, eye for eye, wound for wound, burn for burn. In other words, is the damage done to the person needs to be matched by the consequence. And so when there's this accidental injury, there wasn't intent to kind of damage the baby or take a a slave's eye out or lose his tooth. When these moments of violence happen and it becomes something that was not intended, this law was there to limit the degree to which you could get legal revenge. You with me? So in other words, if Nateska and I, mean if Bickus and I were fighting, and he punches out my tooth, he punches out my tooth, I could go to the judge and say, I want recompense for my tooth, but I couldn't say I want him to be killed. It limited the degree to which we could have our own back. You with me? And so it's a brilliant law. I won't get into all the others. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. Is this thing of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it limited or controlled the amount that we could get our vengeance back. We could, we could revenge. And it prevented what was really a big problem in, the, in Middle Eastern times. It was this thing of 
escalating feuds. Any of you watch the Western where the one guy gets shot and then his posse goes and kills the other guy. And then his posse goes back and kills the other guy. That's what you call a blood feud. And, and, and guys, we live in a much more ordered society than what they had in those days. It could wreck tribes. It could wreck countries where one king would have a feud with another. It was this thing of revenge ruined nations. And what this law does, it stops it. And it says, right, we're not going to let that escalate. Where I take your tooth, then I take your head. Then your head, then I'm going to take their head. And then it just goes higher and higher and higher and higher. What this does was it limited the amount that you could get back. And generally speaking, it was not practiced, thank goodness, if Wendy struck Vickers' tooth out of his mouth. He couldn't go to her and say, well, let me take the pliers and rip out yours. What would happen is the judges would decide how much money. Who hit you? I forgot. There we go. All right. They could, <laughs> could decide how much Wendy had to pay. So thankfully, in Israel, if your ox gored out somebody's stomach, you didn't have to get gored out in response. It, it was, it was a, 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 an optional route you could take. It wasn't literally applied, but it helped the magistrates. This is the point in Exodus chapter 21 verse 22. The judges got to determine what the fee would be. It was never, this is the point I'm making, it was never, this law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was never to be taken into our individual hands. You with me? It was always a third party that would be mutual who would make a decision of what the payment would be. It was never meant that if I've got an issue with Vickers and he knocked out my tooth, well, I'll knock out his. It was never meant to be taken into our own hands. It was meant to be administered by these judges that ruled Israel and it was by a third party party. And my friend, this eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, it is an excellent law. Nations should hold to it because it limits the effect of revenge that happens so frequently in society. But what does Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 to 42, Jesus starts and he says, but I say to you that you is singular. That is very important. It went from being plural in the previous verse to a group of people, now to an individual. Do not resist the one who is evil. And he gives four contexts of how that can play out when somebody can hurt you. The first is if you get struck on the cheek. I'm going to explain that next week. The second is if somebody comes and sues you and says, I want even the clothes on your back. The third is somebody who oppresses you and forces you to go the extra mile with them. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's some sort of government where you have to go beyond what you are willing to do naturally. You force. And the, the, the fourth is if somebody asks you, to give you them something in a way that you feel guilty if you don't. Manipulation. In all of these things, Jesus starts to unpack what it means when evil, people who have evil motives come into our lives. And it's important to see that Jesus is not going against this legal principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for tooth. It's a good principle. Jesus is not saying, no, no, chuck it out. What he is saying is, in our one-on-one -on -one relationships, we have to go much higher than this law. What do I mean by that? Do you notice that in the beginning, in verse 38, the you, which is saying, you have heard that it is said, do not, uh, it's eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. It's plural. And it's to be applied to a group of people by magistrates. It's a law over a nation. It's a law over governing a nation, a court that is to be administering justice to a nation. It is a big group. That law is good. But then he brings it down to you in the singular, and he says, but this law, in your one-on-one -on -one relationships, you must go way beyond it. 
Jesus is not telling us here how to run a business or a police force, an army, but he's saying when you are engaging one-on-one with people in your life, your life must go higher than this law, and it makes perfect sense. Anybody here, have you ever tried to apply an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in a friendship? Anybody? In other words, let me explain it to you like this. You behave like this. You take my eye, well, then I'll take yours. You take my tooth, well, then I'll take your tooth. You hurt me, well, then I'll hurt you. You ignore me, well, I'll ignore you. You attack my reputation, I'll attack your reputation. Is that the way to have a happy home? Is that the way to make good friends? Let me tell you, nobody will want to be your friends. It's a good way to make enemies, not so. And Jesus is saying, guys, this is administered, uh, this is a good law. There's nothing wrong with it when, I, when it's done by a third party. But if you take it into your own hands and want to start applying it to the relationships in your life, it's going to lead to brokenness, not so. Wow, Jesus is so clever. And when I thought about this, I realized more and more that what he is talking about here is when we grab this law and we try to apply it in the way that we deal with one-on-one relationships, it makes us petty, it makes us revengeful and vindictive. We have this copy and paste attitude. You did this to me, well, I'll do it to you. And to the one that has hurt us, oh man, it's this sort of spirit that rises up inside of us that Jesus is asking us to die to. And the problem with this attitude, and if you really have thought about it, it is true, is if you give into this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it just escalates, not so? Forgive me for talking about marriage a lot because it's, it's a relationship closest to home. But if you are willing to strike back at your spouse, it becomes a boxing match that no one wins, not so? Even as a parent, that engaging, you say, come on, bring it on. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. This kind of attitude, it is something that smashes relationships. And Jesus says his followers must be completely free of this vindictive, revengeful spirit. And that is where I'm getting to today, is that these two final giants, they will be the most difficult in your life on earth. In this giant today, Jesus is saying how we are not to respond to those who hurt us. Oh, gosh, pray for me. In two weeks' time, we're going to have to deal with the highest one of all. It's not only what we do not do in response to those who hurt us, but how do we love them? How do we move positively towards those that are such a threat to us or hurt us in our lives? This is big stuff. And I, I will say the reason why these last two giants are reaching the summits of righteousness, which Jesus calls out of his disciples, is because it touches the thing you and I are most sensitive about. It's our egos. I tell you, I think part of the problem of me struggling with this text so much this week, it has been the hardest one I've had to preach in months, is because I feel like God is going after the thing that I struggle with the most. It's my ego. And can I just explain to you, just stay with me for a moment. I might, I, this sounds very strange. What I'm bringing out here is like, how does this come out of the text? I want to explain what Jesus is after here. Friends, the most hopeful thing for you and me is understanding that our problem is not how much money we have or don't have. The problem in our lives and our marriage is not how much we don't look good looking or how much our spouse is not doing for us. That's not fundamentally our problem. Our problem is not that we are not popular enough or too popular, or we don't have the nicest house. Those external things, or that we don't have the clever brain, that's not our problem. Our problem is 
we are born with this preoccupation with ourselves. It's called the ego and sin. Sin, if you want a simple explanation, maybe you get this weird thing that the church always talks about is sin. And you've even been, a, been in church for years. You don't quite know what sin is. I'll tell you what sin is. Sin is essentially being preoccupied with ourselves instead of God. It is an orientation towards ourselves, not an orientation towards God. And this is what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Man, what was at stake was Adam had a decision. Satan came and lied to Adam, and the lie was, you can elevate your ego to the same status as God if you eat this fruit. That's what Adam did. Instead of orientating himself towards God and submitting to him as the final authority, he wanted to make himself the final authority with God. Are you with me? Let me tell you, it is the most destructive thing. We are born with this malady, with this disease, that in our hearts we think we are equal to God. And our preoccupation is ourselves. We think we are the center of the universe, not God. That's what sin is. And we are born with the same mentality that our forefather Adam fell into, was that we want to elevate. We are born with this presupposition that our ego is equivalent to God. And can I say to you this morning, only a miracle will save us from it. Only a work of God can deliver us from this state. And the Bible calls it, it is a radical term. If you want to ponder and think about one thing this week, think about this statement that Jesus says, if anybody wants to enter into his kingdom, he must be born again. Literally inside, God has to stick his hand in and all that death and filth of preoccupation with self. God has to kill. God has to die off to you. God has to, to, to literally cancel it out. And he brings the power of his spirit by the grace of God. And he gives you his Holy Spirit and a radical reorientation in your life to God. Praise God. It's suddenly what was just a natural thing before, which was, what is in it for me? How do I live for me? How do I please myself? Suddenly, God, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, rescues us from that mentality. And the power of God comes into our lives that we are literally born again, transformed on the inside. And we have the power to change, to be reorientated, to have new desires, and to live for God. Amen. That's grace, my friends. It's being delivered from self. It's experiencing the freedom of Jesus breaking into a preoccupation of self, of self that is so limiting, that blinds God, that orientates ourselves in our relationships towards ourselves, that brings such brokenness. God comes in by the grace of God and rescues us from it. I ask you, do you know what I'm talking about this morning? Has God done this in your life? This is what a Christian is. It's someone who's been rescued from themselves. who have experienced the love of a father reaching out to a selfish person like me, like you, and saying, you have something wrong with yourself. That's what salvation is. God has to show you right from the very start that yourself is not helpful. In actual fact, unless you let go of yourself, which is the biggest problem, our big problem is this, is that we think we are so presentable to God. You might not think it, but fundamentally, the thing that stops you from coming to faith in Christ is this belief that you don't really need him. And salvation comes, oh, it's the most beautiful moment. It's so humbling. That's why God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's when mercy from heaven shows us what we really like and how much we really need Jesus. I tell you now, the thing that you need in your life is to see yourself. Until you see yourself, until I see myself as I am, God can't get to us. Amen. And this morning, guys, this morning, 
what Jesus is talking about here in these things that we are going to face, it is leading us into eternal life. Because what God is calling out of us here is something that you cannot do unless you have been born again. You cannot live in this way. You cannot turn the other cheek. You cannot go the extra mile. You cannot lay down your rights if you're being sued. You cannot even give generously towards the one who asks of you unless there has been this understanding that I have been reorientated towards God. That is what salvation is. Salvation is not just being set free from sin. It is being set free from self. Man, and I tell you, you know how God does it in our lives? Is he allows trials to come. Just notice what Jesus says here. Have you ever thought about this? He says, do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, he says, you're going to face people in your life that are going to hurt you. Now, I'm sorry, I just have to push pause there for a moment. We've got people in the church who are saying that this salvation, who needs heaven when you can have heaven on earth? Wealth, prosperity, popularity, success. Oh, no suffering for the Christian. If you suffer, it's a lack of faith. What absolute rubbish. Do you know what builds faith? It's suffering. It's experiencing the hardship and trial when somebody comes into your personal private space and hurts you. It is the most painful thing that Jesus is talking about. So don't read it. It's going, oh, do you not resist the one who's evil? Oh, between the other cheek, if you get stuff. No, Jesus is saying he's going to allow people in your life that are going to hurt you. And how you respond is going to be a sign of what we are really like inside. These trials, the first thing that they do is what they do. They show us what we are really like. Let me tell you, you do not know, I do not know what I'm really like or do you really like until we test it. Not so. And Jesus assumes we're going to face people in our lives who are in the grip of the same satanic preoccupation of self that Satan himself is, that we struggle with. Unreasonable people, unkind people, even hateful people, the kind of people who will strike you on the face, take you to court for the very clothes on your back, command you to go the extra mile, or ask you for money in a way that makes you feel guilty if you don't give it to them. Brace yourselves, it's going to happen. Oh, but wow, wow, wow. The first is that we can understand how much work still needs to happen in you and me. I want to talk about next week, but I'll give you a quick teaser. If we have to strike back in self-defense, my friends, ego is still at play. If we have to be so preoccupied by how much we've been wronged, ego is still at play. If we have to find that we are so inconvenienced, oh man, we are so important that our time, we are on a mission and somebody interrupts us and stops us. I'll explain what it means next week. But we are so egotistical with our time that when interruptions come, we're so angry, we're so upset, someone interrupts our private pursuits, our private enterprise, someone imposes on us, oh man, it shows us our ego. Oh, the most difficult of all. Jesus leaves it for last. John Wesley says it's the last thing that he converted in a man's life. It's his wallet. His money and his time, his possessions are so attached to our ego. And so these testings, they reveal how preoccupied we are with ourselves. It is the hardest thing to see, but when we see it, it is the most helpful. 
Why? Because in these moments of testing and trial, they are training for us. We do not get to face of dying to ourselves unless ourselves are on the line. Does that make sense? Oh, man. You do not get to practice dying to your reputation unless somebody attacks it or takes it away. <laughs> you don't get to practice what it means to be laying down our rights until you're wronged. You don't get to practice what it means to go the extra mile, to be imposed on, to be almost unreasonably forced until it happens, until your ego has to die to these requests that are made that seem so unreasonable. Oh, and the last is this, until God opens your heart and challenges you with generosity, until your wealth might even be taken away, until there's some sort of pressure on you financially, you might never ever get to the place where you realize you are not your money. You with me? It is the most wonderful place to be. What Jesus is talking about here is true freedom. Can I tell you, what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to help us enter into the kingdom. In other words, he's saying, what are the things that block us in experiencing God's power in our lives and moving us forward in our inheritance and reward? What are the things that stop us from achieving the things that God has for us to do? By seeing him more and experiencing him more and living in what the scripture says, righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Man, that's our entitlement. That's what's on offer for us as Christians. We live totally different. We live a life that is full of peace and joy and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. How does he bring that into our lives? Oh. He puts his finger on these areas of ego. Notice what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. In other words, the very thing that's going to be a challenge for you and me in our following Jesus, the very kingdom block of us experiencing a life under the king is this self, this flesh that rises up inside of us. And we have to make a decision. We either take up our cross, in other words, we associate with Jesus. We associate with his method of dying to self. Even up to the, the thing of the cup and the bread this morning, it is literally the highest form of self-sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I so live for the Lord. I so live for God. My life is His. I lay down my rights. I mean, when I'm struck, I don't strike back. I'll go the extra mile with those who force me. I'll even give what I have to those who ask of me. That's the kind of life that Jesus represents. And He says, ah, if you want to follow me, that's the kind of life He wants to build into us. Now, why would He do that? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun if you had to ask me, not so. It doesn't sound like something I'd get up in the morning and go, oh, yeah. Let me go die to self a bit more. Not so? It's awful. Ah, until you realize what God is really doing is he's leading you into freedom. Freedom. Can I say, until this kingdom starts to come in your life, what does kingdom mean? It means the king. This authority is the one that you are responding to and living under. It is the greatest form of release. Why? Oh, if you're like me, I know what it means to live under the tyranny of ego. I hope you can understand this, but maybe this is more of a self-expose. You forgive me. But can I say, when my ego is operating, I'm miserable. Can I tell you why? So I feel like I live under this tyrannical 
self. Because first and foremost, my ego is never content. What it's always doing is, when it's at play, it's always competing. It's always looking around and saying, how can I compare myself to that person? Am I going to be cleverer? I'm going to be more successful. I'm always assessing potential threats because, man, my ego is the one that's important. What I mean by that is what people think of me matters so much to me. I find my life and my value and my contentment from how much people admire me and think about me. So whenever there's competition in the room, I'm threatened. Anybody relate to that? Oh, I hope so. I'm putting myself on a limb here, guys. Come on, help me out here. Do you know when the ego is at work in my life and yours, it leads to jealousy, to envy, feeling so quick to feel inferior. We feel so threatened. If those emotions are rising up inside of you, my friend, it is a sign. Ego is at play, and they are lethal. They are the worst forms of tyranny over a person's life. We're always having to prove ourselves when ego is at stake. We're never at rest. We're never able to just to be and enjoy and be content. No, no, no. We're always proving. We're always striving. We're always trying to push ourselves forward because what people say about us matters so much to us. Amen? What a way to live. How about this? When my ego is at play, I never experience peace. How can I? Because I'm always having to perform. I'm always having to impress. I'm always having to show. And you might think you're a very humble person. My friend, what people think about you matters to you. Even your desire to be quiet is so that people can form a certain opinion. You don't want to speak out because you worry what people think. It's not rooted in modesty. It's rooted in fear. And there's no peace in this ego. Man, it drives us to performance. And you know what it does when you perform? We're always self-assessing. How did I speak at that presentation? I'll tell you what, I saw, the 8 o'clock was a terrible sermon for me. I walked down and said, God, I don't want to get up there for another two. And what I do is, I know egos at play is when every, I don't even let my wife get to the car. What do you think of the sermon? What should I change? How do you feel? But, I mean, the poor woman, she's trying to get the kid into the car. She's trying to go to, and her husband's assaulting her for some form of self-approval and praise. I tell you, spouses, if you are operating ego, you will bend the ear of your other spouse because you just want to feel some form of affirmation. And you analyze and you analyze and you analyze. Could I have done that better? If somebody rejects you, you fall apart. And you, how could I have said that better? And the poor person, the, the onus to make you feel so loved and accepted. It's overwhelming. People can't cope with it. Ever experience a person that is just trying so hard? That's me. And so, guys, this thing of ego, it's tyrannical. It's not freedom. And it's for freedom, Christ says. I've come to set you free. Amen? And let me tell you what he's talking about is the self-preoccupation. You know, the other thing I have to experience about when you are, are trying to prop up your ego, it's so exhausting. I'll tell you how I did it, and God knows I'm still prone to it, is I want to achieve. I'm ambitious. At school, I was doing five different things. Forget the fact that I got glandular fever and I got burnout. Doesn't matter. I need to achieve because I really, I feel so inferior. That's the problem. And so what would happen is this, is instead of me, when I would achieve everything, I'll go, oh, wow, instead of enjoying it and saying, oh, this is so wonderful. No, in actual fact, what happened is, how the heck am I going to improve on that? 
Someone else comes more clever. People don't remember what you achieved for very long, not so. You know what? My one friend said to me, you're only as good as your last sermon. Let me tell you, that way of living, it's hell on earth. It's hell on earth. I'm almost there. Can I tell you the other thing? Here's an expose of the sinful self. Is that when egos at play, oh man, it's impossible to have a clear conscience. Do you know why? It's because our ego plays to who's in the room. And so when there's somebody that can make you look a bit better or advance your reputation, oh, you're so nice, you're so, you want to impress, you want to say the right things, oh, this person, because they can advance you, that's what you're really interested in, you're advancing your ego. Oh, but if somebody's in the room that can't do anything, in actual fact, they're a, a name killer. If, you, if you're around them, you know, they drag you down into the mud with the minions. No, no, you want to go up there and be up there with, and have the, the, the sort of glory that ego demands. You'll ignore them. You'll overlook them. You'll disdain them. You know what I've discovered? How can we have a clear conscience before God when we operate like that? It's impossible. How can we be concerned about loving people when we love ourselves so much? And so what Jesus is talking about here, he's saying, guys, don't buy into the trap that when living for self, you'll be happy. No, no, you'll be miserable. Doesn't this what Jesus says? If any man seeks to save his life, he'll lose it. The very thing that you are after, this life, this contentment, this acceptance, this security, the thing that ego longs for. If you play into ego and its demands, what you will find is you'll lose the very thing that you are after. The more you try to prop up ego, the more insecure you are. Ah, but if any man will seek to lose his life for my name's sake and the gospel, he will find it. Amen. For freedom, Christ has come to set us free. And John chapter 10 verse 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you play into what Satan always plays, ego, he just goes for that all the time. That's his best card. That's how he got a third of the angels in heaven to fall. It's when he plays into ego. Oh, if the thief, it'll come to steal, kill, and destroy. Oh, but Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. If you want to live for ego, you live under fear. If you want to live for Christ, you'll experience freedom. So many of us here, like myself, live with such deep inferiority complexes from the past. People, things that things people have said. Broken relationships that seem to always affirm our weaknesses. But can I tell you now, if you will be on track with Jesus, you will learn what it means to walk in this ever-increasing security that I can lay down my reputation because ultimately it's God who owns it. I can lay down my rights because ultimately God is the one who upholds them. I can even go the extra mile because ultimately my time every day is written in his book. The start, the finish, the number of days, it's all in his hands. Even my time is not my own, it's God's. And all the last thing of all, how arrogant to think that what we own is ours, not so? The clothes on our back, the money in our bank accounts, the cars that we drive, we think these are all extensions of ourselves. No, no, it's extension of God's mercy to you, my friends. And the joy of being generous is sharing in the generosity of God to you and me. 
This is the freedom of a Christian's life. They can turn the other cheek. They can go the extra mile. They can be wrong. They can even give beyond. When, when ego's at saying, ego's saying, no, don't do it. Don't do it. You'd sacrifice too much. No, it's not even mine. It's not even mine to hold on to. It's God's. Oh, that is freedom, my friends. No more looking after you over your shoulder and saying, what does this person think of me? What does God think of you? No more living in a way where you're trying to grab the limelight. Give the limelight to Jesus. No more trying to have a sense of ego. When somebody says to you, oh, we take such, such quick offense. Why? Because we take the word so person. No, no, no. Freedom. Freedom is living for God. Living outside of ourselves. Man, when things are going wrong, you can trust that God is overseeing all of it. When things are going wrong, people are attacking your reputation. You understand that he's the ultimate judge. There's no one else on earth that can overrule his final word. And if you're right with him, oh, just watch the space. He'll set things right. That's freedom, my friend. That's joy, knowing that you can give because the one who is going to give it to you is going to keep giving. You're not going to run out of his final promises. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you clothes on your back. He'll give you food in your cupboard. He will never forsake you. He'll be the one that will be sustaining you over and over and over. It leads us to give and give and give. Who can outgive God? Who can outgive his generosity? Oh, that's freedom, my friend. Being free from self being free from small-mindedness, being free from petty, revengeful spirit. Oh, God forbid, let us enter into the freedom for which Christ has set us free. You know how Peter explains it? He says, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And when this equilibrium inside of us is so upset because of some form of offense, indictment. We recognize from where it comes from. It is an opportunity to grow. Opportunity for freedom. My friend, do you know this freedom this morning? I'm talking to somebody who has experienced this incredible gospel, the good news of Jesus changing from the inside. This is the privilege of the Christian. But you have to be one. And I have to ask you this morning, if you have not yet come to the place, and it starts there, and it continues there, when you see yourself and your sinfulness, just like the rest of us here, where we, God has to open our eyes and say, this is what you really like, Matt Johnson. You are not impressive to me. You're not, you're not, there's nothing in you that can make me want to give you salvation. No, no, I'm coming to you by grace. Is that you? Have you seen yourself this morning? Or is it something like this? I was like this. Oh, I'm coming to church. I'm doing God a favor. Oh, I'm praying. I'm doing him a favor. Oh, I must be so impressive to God. Nonsense. No, 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 my friend. The thing that you need is to see yourself in desperate need for Jesus. That's the start of true freedom for you. That's the gospel. You can try as hard as you like. Let me tell you. If that is you, you haven't seen yourself. The person who understands himself realizes there is no hope here, nothing. God has to pull us out of ourselves and say, there's your hope. His name is Jesus. There's your hope. There's my love for you. I'm not driving you to say you must be something more. No, you have to die. The way you die is you come to the one who died for you. His name's Jesus. You have to cast yourself upon him. You're not impressive. No one's going to applaud you for your good works when you get to heaven. No, no, they're going to applaud your faith in the one that I've set up for you. His name is Jesus. He's the one that you lay hold of. He's the one that gives you eternal life. He's the one that enables this powerful freedom, not only to come in a moment, but to go on and on and on to enter the fullness of life he died for. Is that you this morning?
It's on offer. But you have to lay hold of it. And I'm going to help you to do that now. Let's pray. If that's you tonight, and you want to put things right with God, sorry, if that's you this morning, if you want to put things right with God, my friend, God has got your number. He has been speaking. He is moving here. And I'm telling you now, he's coming after you. He loves you. Don't you think it's amazing that he orchestrated this moment just for you? Don't you think it's wonderful that he chose this time and this place for you to come and meet Jesus? Christians, I just ask you to pray with me now for these guys. There's someone here today that needs to find Christ. Lord, I pray, turn their eyes to you. If this is you this morning, the first thing you have to recognize is that yourself is not helpful to bring about salvation for you. Would you say to Jesus, would you say, Jesus, I need you. Say, Jesus, I want you. You know where I've been. Say that to him. You know where I've been. You know what I've done. I need you. Would you save me? And would you say, would you say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. You say, I believe that your blood is enough to save me. Would you do it? Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. I want to live for you. You say that to Jesus, I want to live for you. Teach me how. That was your prayer of faith this morning. And you know Christ is your only hope. I challenge you to come. Come talk to us here. We'll be here after the service. There's some next steps you have to take. And we need to help you to do that. But in order for us to do that, we need to know that was you this morning. But Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we would give ourselves to the wisdom of God. That we would learn to surrender to what you allow to come into our lives. That Lord, you are sovereign. As Wendy said, how right she was. Sanity comes and we can lift our eyes to heaven and say, no, this is not for nothing. This is God who is working out his perfect work. It's mysterious to me now. It will be revealed to me then. I embrace it. Trusting. Training. In Jesus' name. Amen.